You are listening to the Agape Center Podcast. Matthew 26, 36 to 44. Verses 36 to 44. And if you're there, say amen. amen. And for those who don't have their Bibles with them, I forgive you today. You can read it on the screen. And it says this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Lord God, speak to us, Lord. Lord, teach us, instruct us, rebuke us, correct us. Lord, let us, let us get closer to you in hearing this word. Father, let us grow in your word. And we ask that in your name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. As we chronicle the passion of Christ, we begin with the story, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which in my opinion is a peculiar starting point. Now, I say it's peculiar, it's interesting uh, that we would begin the passion story, the passion narrative um, in this delivery, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's peculiar because of the place, not the situation, but rather the place. For uh, we look here, and the Bible says that uh, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And this place, if we look a little bit, you know, into a little bit more detail, we'd find that this place uh, represents the garden, a garden. And, and that is peculiar because uh, I find it interesting that we would begin the story of uh, the culmination of Jesus' ministry in the garden itself. A garden is an interesting place. Uh, for a garden is a place of cultivation. Uh, a garden is a place of nurturing. If you look at a garden, you know that a garden is a place of serenity. It's a place of, of euphoria. Uh, we feel good when we're in gardens. That's why they put gardens in hospitals. 
uh, because they know that gardens have a certain healing impact to them. When you're in a garden, you feel good about being in it. And, and so it's interesting here that we would uh, find Jesus uh, praying in a garden. Uh, a garden is a place of, of cultivation, but a garden is also a place of productivity. Am I preaching to somebody? Uh, a garden is a place where things are produced. Uh, you can have a seed, but if you don't have a garden to put it in, uh, that seed remains a seed, right? Uh, so a garden is a place of reproduction, of productivity. And so a garden is a very critical and crucial place. The garden can, can symbolize a, a time in your life, a place in your life, right? Uh, we all have garden experiences. We all have places where we need to be nurtured. Uh, most of us did not change our own diapers, and most of us did not... Uh, feed ourselves when we were babies. We had someone who cultivated us, who nurtured us as we were children. And as we grew, even when we got into high school or from middle school to high school, uh, we, we, we continued uh, to be cultivated and to be nurtured. Meaning the garden is a place that is not necessarily temporal, but rather a garden is a lifelong journey. Am I preaching to somebody? We, we have uh, uh, this lifelong experience of nurturing. Can I tell you that even when you uh, graduate from college and you get a job, you still need somebody who's above you who will nurture you, who will help you, who will guide you. We call those mentors. Uh, so the garden is a critical place, but it's also not just a physical place, uh, but a symbolic place, a place of nurturing. And it's interesting that we would talk about a garden because it is in the garden that we notice that the history of man begins. Uh, the Bible teaches us that, that God had created Adam and after he created Adam, he put Adam in what? A garden. And that's what we call the, uh, we describe it as the Garden of Eden. So God puts Adam into the Garden of Eden and then he puts Adam to work. Meaning a garden uh, experience requires some form of effort, some form of, of doing things. I don't know if anybody's with me right now. Meaning while it is a place of cultivation and productivity, a garden is not uh, a built on its own. It doesn't produce on its own. You have to make an effort to produce, meaning don't expect for success to happen in your life and don't expect for productive things to happen in your life if you don't do something about it or if you don't find a way to cultivate it. That's why it's important that you know who your mentors are. You know uh, very well who the people are that are cultivating you because some of us, the reason why we're messed up in our minds is because we didn't have the right people to cultivate us. Okay, I'm only preaching to myself. That's all right. Some of us, we didn't have uh, parents who taught us how to be fathers or, how, or, or taught us how to be mothers or uh, we didn't have uh, mentors who taught us the, the ins and outs of business or in our careers. And so we make a lot of mistakes and a lot of things don't happen because we weren't cultivated correctly. Uh, there are a lot of weeds and a lot of gardens. But we're not going to get too much into that. I just want to make sure I illuminate you on this. That while the garden is a place of cultivation and productivity, uh, the garden is also uh, 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 symbolizes the beginning of mankind. And also it shows us the fall of man. For the Bible instructs, instructs us that it is the pride of man that caused them to be kicked out of the garden. Uh -huh. And if the pride of man caused man to be kicked out of the garden, then we can believe that the opposite will cause man 
to go back into the garden. Can I explain to you that while pride caused them to exit, it was the humility that caused the entry. Uh, the pride of the first Adam is what caused him to be kicked out of the garden of Eden, but we'll find that it is the humility of Jesus that brings him back into this garden. Am I preaching to somebody right now? To understand the nature of humility, I've got to teach you first of all something about the identity of Jesus. To understand the magnitude of what it means for somebody to humble themselves. The magnitude of, of the process or, or the process of humility or the humbling itself requires you to know something about Jesus. So can I break it down for you for a minute? We understand that Jesus is one of the most influential people to ever walk the face of the earth. Nobody is more famous than Jesus. Jesus is the most famous man to have ever walked the face of the earth. Not only is Jesus the most famous man, we don't question his existence. We don't question the historicity of Jesus. Most people will agree that there are enough historical accounts to corroborate the claim that Jesus had walked the face of the earth. What I'm saying to you is, is that Jesus is not just a fairy tale, but rather he was something real that actually happened. Happened. He was a historical fact. It, it, so much so that even uh, 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 historians, whether they're atheists, whether not, wh whether they're atheists or not, they believe that Jesus existed. Now, some believe that Jesus existed, and they believe him to be a holy man, and they believe Jesus to be a man of God. He is not only recognized in Christianity, but he's also recognized in Islam. He's recognized in Buddhism. 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 He's. He's. Wow. He's. Re <laughs> he's recognized in Buddhism. He's also recognized in, in, in Confucianism and in Hinduism. He's recognized in other religions. They know Jesus to be a man of God. Jesus is not a fake. Turn to somebody next to you and say there's nothing fake about Jesus. The, Jesus is not a fake thing. He's a real thing. Uh, 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 he's not a pretend thing. He's not a story. He's not a character. He's not a Disney character. He's a real person and he's a real thing. Now the issue that we have now, and here's where Christianity separates from the other religions is that they believe that Jesus existed uh, but they didn't believe that Jesus is God. Meaning, they're not questioning the humanity of Jesus. Rather, they're questioning the divinity of Jesus. Now, this is where faith comes into play because, you see, faith requires you to believe in something without there being proof of something, but there needs to be enough proof of something for you to believe in it. Can I, can I, can I help somebody understand this? I, I, I cannot prove to you that Jesus is God but I can prove and I can show you enough proof to make you find it crazy to think that he's not God. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that there's enough for me to tell you to make you at least uh, reflect on it. It would cause a doubt or to pause. Let me explain to you why. Jesus is the most famous man to have ever walked the face of this earth. More famous than Michael Jackson. More famous than Abraham Lincoln. More famous, can I, can I, can I talk right now? More famous than Elvis Presley. He's more famous than Bill Gates. More famous than Albert Einstein. More famous than Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. You name it, he is more famous than all of them. But what I find particularly interesting with the names that I've just presented to you is that these guys are guys who accomplish things. 
uh, they had great accomplishments. Michael Jackson sold a hundred million albums, one album. Everybody know Thriller. Thriller is one of the greatest classics of all time. One of the most sold, the most sold album, excuse me, of all time. Michael Jackson had accomplished many great things. He won Grammys. He was talented. He traveled the world. They called him the king of pop. Abraham Lincoln. Well, Abraham Lincoln was part of the reason why we can come to church today and be whites and blacks inside of the church. Uh, he's part of the reason why that, that, that we're not slaves anymore. Uh, Abraham Lincoln held office and he's famous for doing so. Uh, we know uh, uh, Albert Einstein is one of the greatest minds to have ever walked the face of this earth. He made great discoveries. He discovered Brownian motion. He discovered relativity, the theory of, of relativity, special relativity, and also the theory of general relativity. Albert Einstein's contributions are the reason why I can preach now from an iPad and why you guys are using computers today. These are great accomplishments. Steve Jobs recently died and he is one of the great, uh, most innovative minds in technology, one of the most creative minds to have ever walked the face of this earth. These guys were famous for the things that they have done, but what about Jesus? What did Jesus do that would make him more famous than them? I find it uh, particularly interesting because you see, uh, Jesus did not sell a single album. Uh, uh, Jesus did not come up with the theory of relativity. He didn't make any scientific achievements, didn't write any albums. Jesus didn't even travel very much. The Bible helps us understand that Jesus may have walked uh, a distance between Homestead and, and West Palm Beach. He never really left an area that big. Jesus did not get very far. He didn't travel the world. He didn't see many things. He didn't have YouTube to make him famous for no reason, Kim Kardashian. He didn't have Twitter uh, to make him famous for no reason, meaning uh, uh, Jesus did not have a way of delivering the word through television or through YouTube. All he did was walk up and down between West Palm Beach and Homestead and all he did was just preach a word and speak and speak and speak and here he is now the most famous man to ever live. Some of y'all, I don't think y'all catching what I'm saying. Uh, what Jesus did, if you look at it in the eyes of man, was really no big deal. There wasn't really much going on with Jesus. Jesus didn't really do much. I'm, I'm going to put you guys in a very scary place because we, we esteem Jesus very high, but when you really think about it, Jesus didn't really, really do very much. I'm going to help you understand this, that even Jesus tells us that I I'm not really that big of a deal as far as the things that I've done. The Bible says here in John chapter 14, he says the works that he will do, meaning the person who believes in me, the works that he will do will be greater works than, than I will do. What he's saying is, is that you may think that what I'm doing is great, Peter, uh, James, and John. You may think that what I'm doing is great, uh, uh, all my disciples, Bartholomew, all the other guys, but it's not really that great because you see, if you just believe in me, the things that you will do will be greater than the things that I will do. Meaning Jesus is saying that the things that I do are really not that big of a deal. So then why is Jesus so famous? Yes. Yes. I, I, I'm going to uh, make sure we, we, we break this down for a minute. Uh, uh, Jesus is the most famous man to ever live. Some of you will say, well, the reason why Jesus is famous is because he died on a cross. I came to tell you that that is what we know Jesus the most for, is that he had died on a cross. But that in itself isn't even impressive either. God, let me help you. I'm going to help break this down. Y'all, some of y'all getting scared about what I'm saying right now. Because y'all, what? Uh, 
the day that Jesus had given his life to Christ, uh, that, that, sorry, Jesus gave the day that Jesus has been a long day. The day that Jesus gave his life for our sins, the day that Jesus had died on the cross, there were many others who died on crosses with him, but we don't know their names. We had the prisoner on the right or the criminal on the left. We had others. The, uh, the, the, the biblical history and, and, and archaeology explains to us that while Jesus died on that day, many, many, many other men were put on crosses that same day. So if you tell me that the reason why Jesus is so famous is because he died on the cross, then how come we don't know the names of the other guys who had also, oh, I, I don't know if I'm preaching to somebody right now. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus did stuff, but the stuff he did is nothing to warrant his fame. It's nothing to make him famous, nothing too impressive. I, I believe LeBron James did some more impressive stuff from a physical point of view than, than Jesus did. But I came to tell you today that when LeBron James dies a thousand years later, you may not hear his name, but you will still hear the name of Jesus being declared. So how is it that Jesus is more famous? Oh my God. Uh, you see, here's what I want to illuminate you in, is that it's not the thing that you do that makes you famous. It's not the thing that Jesus did that made that made him glorious, that made him what he is, that made him the most famous person to ever walk the face of this earth. It's not the action itself, but it's the purpose behind the action. It's what made him do the thing that he did. It's the reason behind it that makes Jesus, that makes what Jesus did significant, and the reason behind it tells me about the kind of person that he is. Am I preaching to somebody? By knowing the person's motivation, you get to know the person. If I know the person, then I'll realize the significance of what that person did. That's why you've got to understand, my brothers and sisters, that what God does in your life is only great by the magnitude that you place in your relationship and your connection with the person. If you don't know God, how can you appreciate the things that God does for you? You. If you don't have a relationship with God, how can you give God glory and worship and honor and all the glory that he deserves if you don't believe in him? You've got to believe in God and you've got to know what he is so that what he does has significance for you. It's not what he does, it's what he is in what he does. Alright, I'm going to repeat that again. Somebody needs to write that down. It's not what he does, it's what he is in what he does. Some of y'all, you just missed it. Because there's some things that you do, people will never understand why you do it. Hmm. There's some ways that you worship, nobody will understand why. There's some ways that you'll praise, nobody will understand why. Some ways that you'll glorify God, nobody will know why. The reason why they don't know is because they don't know God like you know him. Because they don't know God like you know him. When he does something for you, you praise him different. You know that if if it wasn't for for God, your bill wouldn't have been paid. You're going to glorify God for your bill being paid because you know that God is Jehovah Jireh and that he is your provider. Meaning some people will show up and be like, oh look, I don't know where this thousand dollars came from, but all of a sudden the insurance brought it to me. But a person who knows God knows insurance should have never brought me a check. But thank God he is my provider and here he is bringing me sustenance for me to survive it's my relationship with God that gives me the importance if I know who God is what he does has significance 
So I'm going to break this down real quick. If Jesus only died on the cross, that's all he did. And if Jesus only walked from West Palm Beach to Homestead, I know people who do marathons a lot further than that. If all Jesus did was preach the word, you know how many preachers there were at that time? If all Jesus did was die on a cross, preach a word, if that's everything he did, then how come he is the most famous man? I'm not going to have enough time to break this down for you. This is, I ain't going to have enough time. I just won't. But think about that and give yourself some pause. There must be something about this guy. There must be something about a guy who didn't do much, but he's famous. Now it's not about what he did. It's about who he is. It's about who he is in nature. It's not about dying on the cross. It's about the fact that this guy must be God. But the Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Meaning it's not that he died on the cross. It's that he is God who died on the cross. It's not that he preached the word. It's that he's God preaching the word. Now it's the identity of who he is that drives me to find importance in what he does. I don't have enough believers today. To understand what I'm saying. Meaning, Jesus is famous because Jesus is God. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know if I'm preaching. I, I hope when somebody listens to this sermon on the app who doesn't believe in God, asks themselves some questions. There's got to be something more to this man than just some words, than just dying on the cross, than just bleeding, than just being spit on, than just being beaten, than just being betrayed. There's got to be more because a lot of us been betrayed. A lot of us been beaten. A lot of us been spit on. You're never going to hear about us a thousand years from now. But the name of Jesus, there is no name higher than his name, no name greater than his name. They're going to preach his name. It's with his name that demons run, with his name that they run. So if I find importance in that name, there must be something about that guy. Don't you find it funny that soon as a disaster happens, what name do they call out? Somebody may never go to church. They told me in Haiti, after the, uh, when the earthquake had happened, they said even witch doctors were calling out the name of Jesus. Never been in the service. Don't go to church. As a matter of fact, they're on the other side. But it is innate in man's nature to be connected with Jesus. So therefore, the name of Jesus has importance. It has credence. And so that's why relationships is important. Now that I know who God is, then I can begin to understand the nature and the magnitude of his humility. Can somebody say humility? It's the humility of Jesus now that has magnitude. It's the humility of Jesus why I worship him. To understand that a little bit better, let's look at the canonic text for a second. Uh, the canonic text in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. It says this. It says, it says, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. It says right before that, 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 but, but, but made himself, he, God, made himself 
of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He, it says even in the verse before it that he did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, uh, but he humbles himself, meaning he's God and now he brings himself down uh, uh, to the nature of man. And now we get to the very text that we're reading that, that what happens or what's happening here in the garden of Gethsemane is the culmination of the humility of Jesus. Jesus comes in now. Uh, and the Bible says that, that he, 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 he's, he's already had his communion with his disciples and now he's walking and he, he knows what's about to happen because Jesus knows his purpose and he knows what's about to go down. Uh, now the Bible tells us now, if you look at the text, he says, and Jesus came into a place called Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, sit here while I go. Meaning he knows there's a place that I need to go with God that my friends cannot go with me. There's some people that I got to sift away because I got to get connected with God. Can I tell you, there's some people that you're with, you've got to get rid of them in order to get closer to God. There's some people that you're hanging around, you've got to push them away to get closer to God. Now Jesus then takes his three closest friends. What Jesus is teaching here is that you've got to choose your friends wisely. Not everybody can be your confidant. Not everybody can be close to you. You can't have more than two or three people who know about all your business because there's some people who know about your business who are ready to use it against you when they can find it most appropriate. But what he's saying is, is that be very selective about the people who know you and know some things about you. There's some secrets you better keep to yourself than to say it to that person because when the time comes and it's most appropriate, most convenient, they'll go ahead and speak it against you. So now Jesus says, you know what? Let me take my three closest friends. I'm going to take Peter and I'm going to take the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So now Jesus, if you look at the passage and you read what we just read, Jesus now goes to the garden. Now remember what I told you is that the garden is your place of cultivation. Uh, your garden is the place of productivity and that the garden is the place of growth. And so now Jesus goes to the garden, but he goes with a sorrowful heart. And so now what he does is, is that he tells his friends, you know what? You guys can stay right here. Okay. And I'm going to go a little bit further, meaning now the depth of what he's going into uh, cannot even be experienced by his three closest friends. There's some stuff my brothers and sisters, that you're going to go through, you're going to go through it by yourself. Nobody else is going to be able to go through it with you. You're going to have to separate yourself from other people. All they're going to have to do is look back and watch the thing that is happening to you because what you're going through is you all by yourself. Now, Jesus now uh, looks, uh, he, 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 he takes the disciples and says, you guys stay over there. I'm going to come over here and pray. Now, as he prays, the Bible says that he is so sorrowful, uh, uh, he feels so bad bad about the thing that is happening to him. Uh, he's so down about it. He, he He's in so much internal pain that not only does he cry and sweat uh, 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 sweat that's with salt and water, but he's got blood now that's percolating out of his pores. He's got blood now that's coming out of his capillaries. Now understand this. It's not a, a miraculous thing uh, to cry or sweat blood. People can do that now. It happens to this day. But it tells you the depth, the depth of his sorrow and how much he's feeling so much pain with what he's about to go through. You see, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and he knows how difficult the situation is going to be and he's crying. I want you right now just to put yourself in Jesus' position to say, look at what I'm going through right now. This is painful. Uh, this hurts. This is tough for me. And Jesus tells him now, he says, this cup is too sour. It's too bitter. I can't deal with it by myself. He then prays to God. He says, if it is possible, let this cup 
pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now understand this, is that what Jesus is doing now is he knows he doesn't like what's about to happen because Jesus is man. He is a human man and he knows how difficult what he's going through is. Now get this, he's now imposing his will on God's will. Have you ever done that where you pray to God for something? And you don't really ask God for what he wants. You pray for what you want so that God can want what you want. I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm talking here. Jesus is man and here he is in the lowest point. And he knows what he's going through. He says, God, if you can let this cup pass, let it be your will. That's a wrong prayer to pray. Has anybody thought about that? He said, God, if you can, if you can let that not happen, let it be your will. Not mine, but yours. God. And here it is. God doesn't answer. I will submit to you that no one had a closer relationship than Jesus to God. But there are times where our prayer is so backwards, God can't answer it. Our prayer is so upside down, God can't answer it. We're sitting around praying, 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 saying, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me. He said, you're praying wrong. When God doesn't answer your prayer, you can't be mad at God. Reevaluate your prayer. Because your prayer doesn't match God's will. And so now Jesus, he doesn't hear the voice of God. And ready for this? A lot of us, this is what we do. When we don't hear God's voice, we give up on God. When God is saying, no, just change your prayer. He's saying, he's saying, I, I don't hear God now. And because I don't hear God, let me go back to my friends. So what Jesus does now is he says, all right, God, you don't want to answer me. Let me go find Peter, James, and John. See, 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 you guys don't want to admit that. Y'all did it. You ever prayed to God for something? It don't work out. You're like, man, forget that. I'm just going to go to the club. Forget that. You know, I'm just going to chill with my friends. You know, God, God said he'll be with me. He'll never forsake me. And look at this. And now he, he, he gets up now. He says, I don't hear the voice of God. So he gets up now and then he walks over to Peter. James and John. And he walks up to them and he sees they're sleeping. I thank God for the friends that slept. Because if they were there, they would have took me with them. I thank God for the people who ignored me. Who put me to the side and said, you know what, forget about you. Because you see, it made me have to go back to God and change the nature of my prayer. Y'all, y'all, y'all didn't catch Y'all didn't catch what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus had to learn something. He said, God, I, I don't hear you, so let me go to my friends. And here he is, heartbroken, suffering. And he goes to Peter. Can I tell you something? Nobody can suffer your pain more than you. And only you can suffer your pain. Your friends may want to share with you, but they can never really want to do it even if they love you even if they care about you they can never share the pain there's only one person that you can put your burdens on and his name is Jesus there's only one person that you can cast your tears on his name is Jesus Jesus goes back and he says Peter what's up man 
you don't see me crying over there? Peter, you, you don't see me, you don't see me suffering? Why can't you pray with me? Oh, there's some prayers you got to do by yourself. Oh, James, what's up, man? Why aren't you praying with me, James? You see me crying. You see me sweating blood. I'm going through something right now. And you're over here sleeping? I thank God James was asleep. Thank him Peter was asleep. Because Jesus realized something. There is no friend that you can have that's better than God. There's no friend like God because he never sleeps nor does he slumber. Meaning, I got to go back to God now and I got to reconnect with him. But I got to change the way that I pray. And now here's where the anointing comes. I can tell you something, my friends, is that when you are anointed, you get you 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 get deserted because people can't match your anointing. They don't know what to do with you anymore. They don't know how to act around you, don't know how to speak to you. And so now Jesus goes back into prayer and here he is. Now, let me let me break this down for you just for one moment. Can y'all give me five minutes? What I find is if you go back in the text, read it. The second time he went away and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. What Jesus is saying now is, he's saying, this thing is hurting. And this is going to be the roughest thing that any man has to go through. But God, if you want this for me, God, if you want this for me, then let it be done. Some of y'all, we need to learn to trust in God. We need to learn, to learn to count on God, not to tell God and impose our own dispositions on him, but to know that God's in control of situations. He knows exactly what to do. And so now Jesus, what he did was, is that he changed the nature of his prayer and he essentially prepared himself for glory. Want me to show you how? When he finally decides to relinquish his will, because the first time he didn't, he says, God, it's not my will, but your will. Now he gets into the process of the anointing. Let me explain this to you. When Jesus goes into the garden, he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. Now, what does Gethsemane represent? Well, Gethsemane is oil press. Somebody say oil press. Uh, what is oil press? You see, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is located right next to the Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives. And, and, and olives are an interesting plant. It's an interesting fruit because, you see, olive trees bear fruits called olives. Now, now olives quite literally mean uh, oil from. Somebody say oil from. Yeah. So olives mean oil from, meaning the fruit is designed to put oil, to pull oil out of them. Now, what does oil represent? Well, the oil represents the anointing. Somebody say the anointing. So that means that what the olive represents is, is a potential for anointing. It's a fruit that is born that can provide you an anointing. But in order to get that anointing, there's some stuff that you have to go through. Uh, uh, some of y'all, you want to be blessed by God. You want to be anointed. You want to be able to do some stuff. You want to be able to succeed, but you don't like the process. You don't want the process, and you're praying that God doesn't put you through the process. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I'm going to make oil with you, there's some stuff I got to do to you. There's some stuff I have to do to the olives in order to extract the anointing out of the olives. Now, here's what I understand uh, in the process of the oil press, since that's what Gethsemane means. Well, the first thing that, that you have to do is you've got to clean 
clean the olives. The reason why the olives are cleaned is because they need to be, you have to take the impurities out of it. Now, now, why do you take the impurities out? Well, if they stay in the olive, then the press itself gets destroyed. So what I understand is that before God can put you through an anointing process, and before he can draw the oil out of you, he's got to cleanse you first. That's why David says, wash me and make me whiter than snow. I need you to purify me, and I need you to sanctify me, because God has a reputation to keep. He's not going to sanctify somebody who doesn't want to be cleansed. He's not going to sanctify somebody who doesn't want to be purified. I've got to be different for God. I've got to be purified in God. I have to accept a new anointing. A new anointing means a new life, meaning I need you, God, to take some stuff out of me. Okay, I'm, I'm only preaching to myself. If you don't extract the impurities, the machine will be damaged. And that's why, that's why God leaves some of y'all to the side. Because if he gives you anointing, it'll damage his name. And some of you are wondering why you can't get higher, higher, higher. The reason why is because you're not cleaner, cleaner, cleaner. I'm preaching an unpopular message right now. The next part of the process is, is that you have to be crushed. Uh, you cannot get the oil out of the olive unless the olive is crushed. So what happens is, is that the olive is crushed now. Mm -hmm. And it's crushed. It's just completely crushed until it turns into a paste. This is where Jesus is now because Jesus is in a broken place. What did we say last week? We said that the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. Meaning you've got to be broken for God to use you. Some of y'all, I keep saying this all the time, but I hope you believe it. That, that, that your brokenness is exactly what God wanted for you. After God purifies you, after he cleans you, he's got to break you. Because you see, what breaking does is it humbles you. It makes you realize you're nothing without God. It makes you realize that if God wasn't in my life, that I I would be nobody. Now I'm humbling God. God don't want no arrogant people doing his ministry. He needs some humble people who will hear his word, listen to what he has to say, because he's not going to anoint no joker to come up on his stage to minister in his name. He needs anointed people. And then after he crushes you, the next part is the mixing. And here's what happens. They mix the, they mix the olives. It gets mixed. This is Gethsemane right now. As you mix the olives, they say that the makers, what they do is, is that they have to put some water in it. Because what the water does is, it helps extract or pull out the oil. After you've been sanctified, after you've been crushed, then the Holy Spirit comes in. And the Holy Spirit is the water. <laughs> Some of y'all, y'all say, I need living water. Because it's the water now that extracts the oil. Oh, y'all, y'all ain't catching it. And so now he puts the water in to take the oil out. And after he takes the, after the oil is put out, everybody knows oil and water don't mix. So now the oil sits on top of the water. And then now the oil is scooped out. Meaning now comes the separation. You see, some of y'all, you don't realize that the reason why some friends left you is because they're not right for you because there's an oil, there's an anointing, there's something pure that's coming out of you. So you got to lose some people in the process. I don't know if I'm preaching. 
And so while we recognize that Jesus is God, he's also man. And some people will argue this. Some people will argue that the knowledge of God was limited here. Because he's man, he doesn't know everything. And I can see that as a formidable argument because even Jesus said he doesn't know when he's coming back. So maybe Jesus was limited in what he knew. Because if Jesus knew the glory that was about to come after. Y'all didn't catch it. If Jesus knew he was about to be the famous man to ever walk the face of the earth. If Jesus knew that he was about to go back to the seat of heaven, the throne of heaven, and be glorified and magnified and be lifted up. If Jesus knew that no name would be higher than his name. If Jesus knew that he would be the deliverer, he would be the healer, that there would be one mediator between God and man. If Jesus knew, do you think he would have been crying about the pain he was going through? Y'all, y'all didn't catch it. If you knew the glory on the other side, would you be crying about your mess right now? If you knew what was going to come out of your situation would you be crying about what it is Jesus had to get into prayer and he had to sit down and he had to say you know what God I don't know where you're taking me but I trust you oh my God help me I count on you that you will take me to a higher place I came to declare to you that you might be in a pressing place right now but there's still glory on the other side he says for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That means that whatever it is that you're going through, his thing for you is bigger than the pain that you're going through right now. We pray you found this message to be a blessing to you. If our ministry has impacted you in any way, please tell us. We would love to hear from you. Email us at intouch at agape-center.com If you're in the Fort Lauderdale area, come visit us. We would love to have you join us. For more information, please visit our website at www.agape-center.com. We look forward to hearing from you soon.